Last week, uh, last week we, we took a pause out of the book of Acts and we just decided to focus on mission and where we're going as a church and where we're going as a church largely over the course of the next, uh, of the next 10 years. And the reason we're walking through the book of Acts is because it aligns well with our focus here, which is largely going to be prayer and evangelism for the foreseeable future. And so uh, a bunch of different prayer opportunities. You saw the, the screen earlier as Pastor Brian was talking through those opportunities. But ladies, your prayer starts this week, Tuesday, 10 a.m. If you're able to come, please join us. <laughs> Brian did the same thing. Please join them. I won't be there um, in, the, uh, in the chapel. Uh, last Sunday night, we had our first kind of corporate all-church prayer that everybody was invited to. We did it in the fellowship hall. And man, the prayer team did an incredible job uh, leading that. And um, we just went and, and we prayed. It wasn't a lot of chatting. It wasn't a lot of talking or, or digging into our Bibles or anything like that. It was simply, we're going to petition the Lord for the sake of Kings County, for the sake of the gospel. Um, we prayed for local leaders. We prayed for discipleship and evangelism and all, all the different things. And so our prayer team did an absolutely amazing job. Can you give it up for our, our prayer team uh, as well? Very thankful for them. It's rare that a pastor doesn't have to be there and give oversight to the entire thing. And so I was there. Um, I missed the fourth quarter of the 49er game. Um, so thank you to the prayer team. Uh, no thank you to Pastor Jeff, who planned it on NFC Championship Sunday. So uh, all, that, all that to say. Uh, what we're going to find here in, in Acts chapter 2, in this passage of Acts chapter 2, because Acts chapter 2, there is a lot that happens. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Brian talked about Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to look at uh, the Apostle Peter and what most people believe to be the first sermon communicated to the early church, especially on the other side of Pentecost. Then next week, we're going to see what it should look like for us to be able to live in community um, as, a, uh, as a church. But as the Apostle Peter kind of lays this entire thing out, um, it isn't a, a, a a sermon necessarily about marriage or, or, or how to be a better parent or how to manage money or how to be less anxious or, or anything like that. Because at the end of the day, the purpose of the church is for the exaltation of God, for the edification of the saints, and for the, evangeliz or for the evangelization of the entire world. And so this sermon that Peter is giving is largely to address the last purpose of the church, the evangelization of the world. And that's what we want to be about. And people, this is where people uh, get, get a little bit freaked out regarding faith, is I've come to a saving faith, I believe in Jesus, I believe what the Bible says, I've made Jesus Lord of my life, all of those different things. And then we say, all right, great, it is now your opportunity to be able to share the gospel with those people who are in your relational world. And we just get scared. And I'm sure you probably felt that way, felt like maybe you were too scared to share your faith. We do uh, a thing called Growth Track on Wednesday nights that I teach on a regular basis. And, and um, we talk about just what the church is about. We talk about sharing your faith. We talk about small groups and service and what it looks like to be a member at FBH and all those different things. And so when we come to the portion about sharing your faith, one of the questions is, is what, what is it that you are fearful of? when it comes to, uh, comes to sharing your faith. And the main reason people are afraid to share their faith is that largely they, it, it, it comes from wondering what others will think of us and how those people will react to us. And I get it, because there's a vulnerability there, right? 
about sharing your faith. Like, this is my faith. I've come to this, this belief. And it's a very, very personal message. And it can oftentimes feel like even like a personal jab if it's met with some sort of resistance from other people. Like, we recognize that rec- uh, rejection stings. And we often fear taking a risk because we're afraid about how other people are going to take that, how other people are going to be able to understand the gospel. And so that's, that's the first one. Okay, the second issue is we're scared we're going to say something wrong. Right? And we tend to put unneeded pressure on ourselves and don't want to mess it up in case our message is misunderstood or we give them some sort of wrong information. And so what happens is because we are so afraid to share our faith and we're going to give a wrong answer and maybe that wrong answer is going to lead them to hell. I don't know. Instead, we don't share our faith and guarantee that that person is going to go to hell because we simply don't share our faith. So that's not a, a great reason either, but it is a reason. And, and another reason is we simply, we simply don't know where to start. Like, how is it that I'm supposed to talk to somebody about, about Jesus? We think about sharing our faith and are like just even paralyzed by, by that message. How do I verbalize what Jesus means to me? How can I say it in a way that makes sense and people aren't necessarily offended by that or it's too important for me to handle on my own? And sometimes we're just so, so unsure of where to start that we simply never even begin in the first place. Right? Even me, like I'm a professional Christian, right? That's what I say about myself oftentimes, um, that you know, people come to church and he's going to have answers and all these different things. And, and there's a whole stigma, and I'm sure you're probably aware of it, surrounding pastors, right? That as soon as like small talk comes up, and it's like, oh, what do you do? And I say I'm a pastor. All of a sudden, they assume their grandma is in the room, right? They sit up a little bit straighter. If they were swearing before, they're not swearing anymore, right? And all of a sudden, they start talking about, like, start, start talking about, like, King James Version English. And I'm like, they just, I'm a normal person. Like, just have a normal conversation with me. Um, but that being, that being said, like, I am, like, people, people start thinking they need to act a certain way around me, and so I assume that, that once they know I'm a pastor, they're going to give me answers that I want to hear rather than answers that are true, and so my fear is less about rejection and more about authenticity regarding that conversation, and when you say it out loud, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous. Because at the end of the day, all of us would believe that this is, and for those of us who would say Jesus is Lord and Savior of the life, that this is the most important thing to us, or at least it should be. It's not your kids, it's not your family, it's not your finances, it is your relationship with Jesus and the fact that you were a sinner in need of a savior and because of that, Jesus went to the cross in order for us to be able to spend eternity with him. And so so we talk about sharing our faith uh, with others a lot at FBH, but oftentimes maybe you've gotten in a situation where you had a chance to share the gospel, right? And And you froze because you felt like you didn't know what it is you were supposed to do. There you go. Like think back even to the last time maybe a friend or a family member brought up something about Christianity where you, this is like, this is the easiest on-ramp at all. And they brought maybe Christianity, the Bible, and, and you even thought to yourself, you know what, this is a great opportunity for me to be able to share about my faith. And then you just simply let it sail right past you. You know, here at FBH, we, we look at evangelism through the lens of what we would call oikos. Okay, oikos, it's a Greek word. It's not just a yogurt. Oikos specifically means uh, 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 household. And that word is found over and over and over again in the New Testament. And the way we use it is that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your relational world in order for you to make an impact for them for the kingdom of God. So all of us are responsible for someone. 
we would say usually it falls in that range of eight to 15 category. If you're an introvert, it's probably closer to eight. If you're an extrovert, it's probably closer to 45. You extroverts in the room. But we often think that the only way for people to come to faith is that if I have a professional Christian, come and talk to them or have a conversation with them. But, but re- regardless of what the stats say, because stats would actually say that talking with people you already know about faith is the most effective form of evangelism. As a matter of fact, only 5%, 5% of people come to faith because of a pastor or a preacher. That overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of the time, people come to faith because of a dad, a mom, a sibling, a relative, a coworker, a boss, a coach, someone that they already have a relationship with. And so today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at what the Apostle Peter shares. And to be clear, yes, I am Pastor Peter preaching about what the Apostle Peter preached about. The worship team thought it was hilarious. I didn't think it was that funny. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to talk about what the Apostle Peter shared and the gospel, how he shared the gospel as an example of how we can share the gospel with our oikos so we don't miss these opportunities because it is our responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with those who are in our relational world, those people who we would say are in our oikos. And so as we get to the text, we need to recognize a couple things. One, this text is incredibly dense and incredibly thick and incredibly long. It's Acts 2, 14 through 41. We are not going to hit every single verse for the sake of time, okay? That being said, it is all worth reading. It is all worth, worth going, going through. The second thing is we need to remember that the book of Acts is what we would call a descriptive text. There's two types of texts in the Bible. There's descriptive and there's prescriptive. Descriptive texts are essentially what the book of Acts is, that essentially the apostle or, or, or Luke, Luke is writing down what happened. He is describing what happened in the Acts of the Apostles, the early church. That's where we get the name Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, okay? So it's descriptive. And with descriptive text, what you can do is you can say, you know what, I understand what they're saying. I can probably pull some different things out of that that I am able to apply to my life. Okay, those are descriptive texts. The other side is prescriptive texts. And so prescriptive texts are largely texts that we have on our wall in our lobby. Love God, love people, serve the world. So when Jesus tells us, hey, you need to love your neighbor as yourself, Okay, that is prescriptive. That means that is something that you have to do. It is being prescribed to you. And so this text is not prescriptive, meaning let's pull some stuff from it, let's apply it to our lives, and we are going to be better equipped to be able to share the gospel once we, once we do so. So that being said, we're going to jump in. Uh, we're not going to read the entire thing first. We're going to chunk it up piece by piece just because of the fact that it's, it's so long. But it starts in verse 14. Okay, and this is what it says. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, which eleven? The other apostles. Okay, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Okay, we're going to get to the drunk part in just a second. But the first part, specifically, he's talking about, uh, he says, fellow Jews. This is an important note that we have to make as we walk through the book of Acts. The beginning of Christianity, the way, as it used to be called, the beginning of the way, man, eternity was still only reserved, specifically eternity with God through faith in Jesus Christ was only reserved for people who were Jewish. So 
Raise your hand in here if you're Jewish. That's what I thought, none of you, okay? So this was not yet open to all of us. Pretty soon, later on in the book of Acts, it is going to be open to both Jews and Gentiles. So as of right now, God is talking, the apostle Peter, rather, is talking about God to Jews only. So when he says, to my fellow Jews, that's who he's talking about. He's not talking to Gentiles at this point, but he is still evangelizing to them. So then in verse 15, he says, these people were drunk, or not drunk, sorry, different clarity. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Okay, so the first thing that Peter does largely is he clarifies what's going on for those who don't understand what's going on. The people, who don't, the people who don't understand are people who have not had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, meaning they don't necessarily have salvation through Christ alone. Okay, and so they're like, what is happening? And they try to explain it away. They're like, obviously these people were drunk. Earlier on in Acts chapter 2, Pastor Brian covered it two weeks ago, what happened was there was this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's things that look like flames of fire that appear above, above the believers' heads. And then they start talking in tongues, speaking in tongues, all these other languages that they don't necessarily understand or whatever. And so they try to explain it away to the best of their ability. Well, they can't explain it away to the best of their ability. So they're like, you know what? They're probably drunk. And so Peter's like, hold up, time out. These people aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. There's no way these people could possibly, possibly be drunk yet. And so it's important that Peter is clarifying what's happening for those people who are, who are coming into the congregation, as it were. It's the same thing that Pastor Brian did this morning when he welcomed you all. He came up. He welcomed you to church. He made you woo twice because the first one was pretty pathetic. Okay? And then after that, he said, this is what the morning's going to look like. We're going to stand in just a second. We're going to sing. Then he said, I'm going to come back out here. I'm going to give you some announcements. Then Pastor Peter is going to come. He's going to preach the word. And then after that, we're going to receive communion together. And he is explaining what's going on for those people who maybe aren't familiar with our liturgy, our order of service, how it is that we do things here. And he is clarifying that for each and every one of them. And then I would say beyond that, for those of you, as you are talking to other people about their faith, or talking to other people about your faith in general. It is important for you to clarify things for them. If you're inviting them to church, man, don't just come in and sit at a seat and wait for them and turn around. Go stand on the porch and wait for them. Help them get their kids checked in. Clarify any misunderstandings they may have regarding the gospel. Clarify any misunderstandings they may have regarding church in general. And so then Peter, he doubles down. He's like, hey, not only am I clarifying the fact that they're not drunk, let's read in verse 16 what he says. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. It's really encouraging. Verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so Peter, as he sees it here, what was happening was seen to be as the fulfillment of a prophecy by the prophet Joel. And here, Peter decides to quote the passage. It's Joel 2, 28 to 32, for those of you who take notes. That's what he is quoting specifically. So another thing we need to remember as we are sharing our faith and communicating our faith with people is it's important if explanation needs to be backed by Scripture that you back it by Scripture. And that's what Peter's doing. He doesn't just make a claim. He didn't say, no, those people aren't drunk. saying, actually, you know what's happening? Between 500 and 900 years ago, he probably would have known. We don't know. We don't know when the prophet Joel actually existed and prophesied and all of those different things. It's between 500 and 900 years before Peter speaks to them. 
says, hey, the prophet Joel, five to 900 years ago, he is telling us right now what actually is going on. The prophet Joel says that God is going to pour out his spirit on all people, and there's going to be signs, and there's going to be wonders, there's going to be all of these different things, specifically in the last days. And so as Peter is thinking about Joel's prophecy here, and he's applying these things to the last days and claims that his hearers are now living and in the last days, some of you may be thinking in the same way that I think, hold on, how can I rectify this? Because Peter actually talked about this 2,000 years ago and said the apostles are living in the last days. The apostle Paul talks about the last days. The apostle Peter over and over again talks about the last days. James talks about the last days. So like, hold on, if those were the last days, did they miss their timestamp in some way? Did they misunderstand when the last days were? Is scripture incorrect? So let's, let's clarify that a little bit, okay? Here's what it means. God's final act of salvation has taken place. So in that sense, we are now in the last days. So remember, thousands and thousands of years before this, there's creation and, and God comes and he, he creates and he says it is good and he makes all of these different covenants, right? He makes a covenant with, with Noah and Abraham and I, like there's just covenants that kind of riddle the Old Testament. But all of it is based around the idea that you have to follow the law perfectly, you have to listen to the prophets perfectly, you have to listen to the judges perfectly, and then you will be able to gain salvation in some way, shape, or form. They had been waiting for a Messiah to break that model for them then to be able to make their way back into heaven. It wasn't, wouldn't be a works-based justification, it would be a faith-based justification, meaning they would be able to get into heaven because of their faith and because of God's grace, not because of how good they were. And so Jesus then steps onto the scene. He comes in. He, he, he does an incredible couple years worth of ministry. He dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. And once he is raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven. And at that point, the apostles, as well as everybody after them, are now living in the last days because the final act of God's salvation has already taken place. And so not only that, not only are we now justify, we can go to heaven right? Because of not what we have done, but what Jesus has done. This means that God's Holy Spirit now resides in us as well. From the point of, of Pentecost, at early Acts chapter 2 forward, we are then sealed by the Spirit by our recognition, recognition of Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. So the Holy Spirit now resides in, resides in us. And through that, much like we talked about last week in Ephesians chapter 3, we can now do great things, not because of how good we are or talented we are or as special as we are, as your mom would probably say, but because of the fact the Holy Spirit now resides in us and we have supernatural ability to be able to do things. John 14, 12 spells it out pretty well. This is Jesus talking. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. So think about the works that Jesus has been doing. Healing the sick, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, these miraculous signs and wonders, all of these different things. And then he says, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Meaning the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer are able to do even greater things than Jesus did when he was here. And so in the book of Acts, we're gonna see the disciples over and over doing greater things, healing the sick, raising people from the dead. Is it one, there's one point where God's judgment, I'm really looking forward to this, Ananias and Sapphira, they come in, they tell a lie to the, to the church, God splits the ground open. This is New Testament, this is not Old Testament, this is after Jesus. The ground rips open and they both fall in and they die. It's pretty incredible. So don't lie. 
But that's what is happening. They're able to do even greater things. We are able to do even greater things specifically because of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in and through us. But that doesn't just mean we get to open our mouth and the Holy Spirit's going to do whatever he wants to do. We need to ask him what he wants to do. We need to spend time seeking him and being right, right where it is that he wants us. So we laid out this big, <coughs> excuse me, we laid out this big vision last, year, or last week. And we talked about this idea over the course of the next 10 years. We want to evangelize to 25,000 people in Kings County, our church. That's not all the churches, that's our church. And like Pastor Brian said, five people a year for each of you. That's all it would take. But that being said, I wrestled with this and the pastoral staff helped me kind of shape it and mold it and all these different things. And I spent a ton of time praying because at the end of the day, and, and it pains me to say, you can have a successful church as the world would see it as successful apart from the Holy Spirit. You could have incredible programs, you could have great kids ministry, you could have great outreach ministry, you can serve the community, you can do all of these things, but you would never need the Holy Spirit in order to do them and still be considered successful. We are no longer concerned only about how polished of a program we can put on on Sunday. We want to be right where it is that we're supposed to be so we can hear the prompting and the calling of the Holy Spirit so we will be able to do things greater than these. That's the hope. That's the goal. And so there's something kind of very meta going on here as Peter preaches. He's full of the Holy Spirit as he explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's in Acts 2, 4. And something significant has changed at Pentecost. Right? No longer does the Holy Spirit reside in the tabernacle or the temple or anything like that. His Holy Spirit resides in his church body, specifically in his people. So if you were to go back to the resurrection narrative, or the, the, the crucifixion narrative, rather, in the Gospels where Jesus dies, the second that Jesus dies and he commits his spirit to heaven, something crazy happens at the tabernacle. There's this massive curtain that is separating everybody else from the Holy of Holies. That is, no one is allowed to go in there except one priest once a year, and they even tie a rope around his ankle in case he sins while he's in the Holy of Holies, they can kind of pull him out by the ankle. It's pretty fascinating. I wouldn't sign up for that job. I'll be like, I'll be the greeter today. But what happens is, is once Jesus commits his spirit, that curtain, that veil, tears from top to bottom. It's this massive veil. It's pretty actually incredible. And that symbolizes the idea that the Holy Spirit is now not just reserved for the Holy of Holies and the inner, the, the, like the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, but the Holy Spirit is now available to everyone who would acknowledge Jesus both as Lord and Savior of their life. And so the Holy Spirit now resides in us at that point. And so we can do even greater things. Like, well, what greater things? Are we going to start all speaking in tongues all the time? Are we going to be like a bunch of miracles and prophecy and all those different things? No, not necessarily. Do I think those things are shut off? Am I a cessationist? That's the theological word for it. No, I'm not a cessationist. I believe God's power is still available to us today as it talks about in Acts chapter 2 here. As a matter of fact, my dad, I was going to share this a couple weeks ago. Uh, my dad... Uh, had the gift of tongues. And he found out he had the gift of tongues because he went down to Mexico and they were, they were doing some ministering to a church down in Mexico and they asked my dad to give a sermon down there. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll do a sermon. So he gets up there, 17, 18, 19 years old, something like that. And he gets up there and he preaches his sermon, does a good job, he comes down and, you know, the people that he came with are like, wow, Ed, great job, you know, and nothing out of the ordinary. And then, then the people from the church came over to him, all of whom were Mexican, and they started speaking to him in Spanish. My dad was like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand Spanish. 
And through a translator, he found out that actually, he actually gave that entire sermon in Spanish as well as English. So we talk about things and signs of wonders, what the Holy Spirit can do in us. Like these are the things that we are talking about. This is how the Spirit works, the things that we can't explain away. And the only way we can explain it is by, the, by like the idea that the Holy Spirit is physically residing in each of us. And that power the Spirit gives us should be used to be able to expand his kingdom. But let's keep cranking. Verse 22, he says this, fellow Israelites, again, only talking to the Jews. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge to you, or foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Okay, this is going to sting very, very deeply for these people. Okay, I want you to notice for just a second, verse 23, we're not going to go into it because it goes deeply into the idea of predestination versus free will, free will. and if you have an issue or you're wrestling through predestination or free will, this is going to be a difficult verse for you. Because it says that God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So God set up exactly what was going to happen because he knew about what was going to happen and it was his plan. So good luck deciphering that between predestination and free will. But Peter's addressing, again, men of Jerusalem. But he's also addressing all the people from the various regions that we read about back in Acts chapter 2, verse 9. Remember, at this time, Pentecost was a traveling holiday, meaning that all of the people who were Israelites needed to make, needed to make the trek to Jerusalem, to the tabernacle, specifically for this feast that they were going to have. So there are thousands and thousands of people who are coming to this place. And so he's addressing all of these people, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, as it talks about in Acts 2, verse 9. And so the festival, has, it has drawn people from all over the known world, even, even if they identify primarily as men of Jerusalem. And so at the end of this sermon, 3,000 people become Christians which implies even more people were listening at that point. So the point is, whether these people were the ones to mock Jesus or not, as it talks about in verse 23, and call for his crucifixion, they're all still guilty of Jesus' death. They are corporately guilty. So Peter comes out and he's like, hey, look, this guy's Lord, he's Savior, this guy Jesus, and you guys put him on the cross. That would cut pretty deep especially as they know they've been waiting for a Messiah for thousands of years. God's chosen people have been waiting for a Messiah. And then Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So they were corporately guilty. The question is, does that mean that we're innocent? I think this is our sin as well. And I don't think we we think about it that way because we're like, well, we weren't there. Well, most of them probably weren't there either. Most of them probably weren't the ones who were like, yeah, nail him to a cross, give us Barabbas, all of those, all of those things. Whether or not we nailed the hand, we, like we drove the nails through Christ's hands today, whenever we choose sin over him, we are showing the same heart of rejection that those people had as well. So we say, you know, when, when we're 
you know, full of the Spirit, and we're just like worshiping God and all that stuff. I'm like, I'm going to honor God with my life. I'm going to orient myself towards Him. I'm going to do my best to repent of my sin and just continue to move towards Jesus. And you're like just on fire for Jesus, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, but this sin over here seems pretty fun to play with. And so because of that, I'm going to choose this sin. And the moment we choose sin over honoring God with our lives, we've also helped put Jesus on the cross, And this isn't out of a place, like for Peter, this isn't out of a place of like, hey, you guys are a sinner and I'm not. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times in Luke 22. He's not there as a perfect person. I'm not on stage as a perfect person. I fail all of the time. But as a forgiven person, someone who recognizes that Jesus went to the cross for him. So as you are talking about faith, you cannot be afraid to confront and talk about sin. And I think we are. It's one of the reasons that we wanna make sure that we are sharing our faith with those people that we already have a relationship with, but we also can't leave it there. We need to recognize that anytime we talk about sin, we have to do so very humbly and honestly, and sometimes the best way to talk about sin in other people's lives is to talk about the sin that you're wrestling with or the sin that you're coming through as well. So we consistently say, I, consistent, I consistently say that some of your greatest ministry is going to come out of some of your greatest hurt. And oftentimes that hurt is a result of sin that we have in our lives. And so now because of the fact that you have walked through sin, you now get to minister to those people who are dealing with, with the same thing. The church that I came from before I was here at HDC, they had a great men's group um, and that group was all about men who used to struggle with pornography or men who were struggling with pornography and it was led by a guy who used to there goes my communion who used to struggle with pornography why does he do it why does he lead that group because of the fact that he had encountered that sin he recognized calling out that sin and helping those people recognize that god's grace is sufficient for that sin what could be some of his greatest ministry that he ever had and that's what peter goes into here because a recognition of sin leads to a desire for grace. We cannot sit here and think to ourselves, yeah, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and not desire grace for that sin. And so Peter preaches on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead for the next nine verses. And he starts with this verse in 24. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then after that, there's a portion that's going to tell us that the resurrection really matters and it was prophesied by the old, or in the Old Testament by David and it just goes on from there. So we're not going to get into all of that. I would encourage you to read it, but just know that is a prophecy being answered from the Old Testament from David. But I did a little research about this, about death in general. It was a really exciting time uh, for, uh, for me and my study. Um, but the, it is estimated that 60 billion people have lived on planet earth since the birth of Christ. 60 billion. That's a lot of people, right? You know how many of them have returned permanently from the dead? One. Only one, Jesus. And so to take it a step further, to make it even more cheery, the odds of me dying this year are 0.16%. It's not bad odds. I'd bet on those odds, right? 0.16%. But if I were going to change it to the odds of me actually dying, those are 100%. I will 100% die someday unless Christ returns. We are all going to die one day. Let's make it even more happy. This year could be your year. 
But we can't get so carried away in talking about like our need for Jesus that we forget to talk about Jesus. And Peter spends ample time talking about him here, specifically in verse 32 and, and following. It says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. He's received the power from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is a very interesting relationship that we see here in the Trinity, right? Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So look again what it says, what it says here after he's exalted the right hand, that Jesus has received from the Father. So the Father gave the Spirit to Jesus, and then Jesus poured out the Spirit on what you now see and hear. Quick side note, there is no hierarchy when it comes to the Trinity. They are in perfect communion and community with each other. And so anytime that we see God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit or, or Jesus was sent by God or anything like that, it's not transactional, it's relational. That They recognize the role that each of them have in this divine dance that the three of them are doing. And so then it says in verse 34, uh, it says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this portion where it says, Jesus is a Lord, this is a name that is specifically used for only God in the New Testament. If you're familiar with it, it's that word Yahweh. Hey, this is the same word that is used for Jesus. This would have been mind-blowing to the Jews who were there, because that was a name that was only reserved for God the Father. And now Peter is applying that same name to Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so it's saying, hey, look, he's the Messiah. He is, the, he is God's special king, the Savior. And so to come to Jesus as your Lord, God, Messiah, and your Savior is what it means for us to be a Christian. And in Acts 4.12, it tells us that Jesus offers salvation to any who believe in him. So when you're talking to other people about Jesus, when you're talking to other people about this idea of faith, you have to talk about who Jesus is. You have to talk about that Jesus isn't just some, some great biblical teacher, some moral man who's, who had some signs and wonders. He was kind of like a prophet. That's not the case. You have to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh who came to earth to die for your sins. And if we don't do that, we are missing an opportunity to accurately share the gospel with other people, with our friends, with our neighbors, our coworkers, our strangers, all of whom need to hear who Jesus is. And then it keeps going in 36. It says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, press pause there real quick, because if you impregnate that pause, all of a sudden you think that God has created Jesus, because this is what it says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made Jesus, that's not what it says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What, what about this cut them to the heart? The fact that, that Peter said, you guys nailed him to a cross. You guys nailed this Messiah that you have been waiting for to the cross. And so the people were like, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can I just say, I really wish that every text in the Bible had this question in it. 
Like, hey, you did this, and then somebody asks, what should we do? And then I can just say what the people said in the Bible about what it is that we should do. It is an answer served for us on a silver platter here in verse 38 where it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Okay, I'm cut to the heart. I helped kill them. Like my, the, my, my sins put the Messiah on the cross. What do I do? Repent and be baptized is what Peter says. And then he continues on, he says, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive salvation. Okay, we need to press pause here again. Again, there's some theological implications here that we've got to deal with. Oftentimes when that passage is read in verse 38 specifically, where it says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There are, there are kind of pods of Christianity that exists that would quote this, Acts 2.38, and say, look, the Bible says that if you want to be forgiven, you have to be baptized. Actually, as I was reading this, the order in which I do my sermons is I pray, I read the text, I write down my initial thoughts, and then I don't consult any commentaries and just kind of write down my thoughts. And so I was in the writing down my thoughts stage, and I couldn't get past Acts 2.38. So I went and I sat in Jeff's office. I was like, Jeff, explain this to me. And he was like, man, I don't know. (laughs) Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And so then we dug a little bit deeper. I dug a little bit deeper because this can be a a point of confusion for both adults and kids. We had our baptism class at the nine o'clock and oftentimes people think that in order for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be washed clean and for you to get to heaven, you have to get baptized. That's not what our theology would say. Our theology rests on Romans 10, 9, and 10, where it says all you have to do in order to inherit eternal life is believe believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your lips that God God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Meaning, like, you can do nothing to get into heaven. There is nothing that you can possibly do. Because as soon as we say, okay, yeah, you have to believe in your heart, confess your lips, and be baptized, what happens? That is now a works-based salvation. And Paul talks in Romans, Paul talks in Galatians that it is Jesus plus nothing. There is nothing that you can do to earn favor with God. Jesus did all of it. Okay, well, how do we rectify that verse then? Okay, much like the English language, the word for, in the Greek, it's the word eis, E-I-S, okay? That word can be used in a couple of different ways. So the way that it's kind of used here is used to like in order to get salvation is the way that we think of it. Repent and be baptized in order to get salvation. That's not the way it's actually used here. The way it's used here is more of because of. And so when it says repent and be baptized, a closer reading would be repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Not for the forgiveness of your sins, but rather because of the forgiveness of your sins. So just had to make sure that we were square on our theology, uh, theology there. That being said, should you get baptized? Yes. Do you have to get baptized in order to receive eternal life? No. So then he finishes off here in verse 39. He says, the promise is for you and your children and, all, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I don't know about you, but when I think about the idea of 3,000 people coming to faith that day, especially in that time, 
especially without a microphone, especially without speaker systems. Like, man, how is that possible? Even considering the size of the towns and that sort of thing, the size of Jerusalem overall, how is it that 3,000 people came, uh, came to faith that day? The truth is, like I said, Pentecost, that's a traveling holiday, meaning there are people from all over the place who are coming. And, and, and we could probably assume that it's not just Peter. Open Air Stadium, that's fine. His voice and his words can probably project pretty well. But there's also the other 11 disciples there who are most likely proclaiming the same message as well. And it didn't say 3,000 people came to faith at that point. It said that day. So this is a message that probably could have been given numerous times and talked to numerous different people about that message as well. So there would have been massive crowds of Jews who were hearing the gospel presentation, this gospel presentation, probably for the first time. And so what's that gospel presentation? How is it that we can utilize some of these tools in our own life in order to be able to share our faith? Use scripture, right? Use scripture when you can. Talk about sin and how we're all in need of a savior. Don't shy away from that. Okay, but talk about sin, how we're all in need of a savior. Talk about who Jesus is and what he did. Repent, turn away from the sin that, you, that, like, that got you in need of a Savior in the first place, and then be baptized after you believe in your heart and confess with your lips. And not only will you be saved, you'll also have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. These are tools for us to be able to use in order to talk to other people about faith. And I think most of us would sit here and be like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, those are great tools. Here's the problem. We don't use them. I think oftentimes we miss it. And I think the reason that we miss it is oftentimes we're just kind of content with where we're at. Because for those of you who would claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, we come here week after week. And we sit here in, in, in security knowing that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And not only are we sinners in need of a Savior, but God already provided a way back for us. So we're secure in that. We're okay with that. We're happy with that. How is it that I can grow my faith with Jesus? I joined a small group. I serve on a regular basis. I'm there every Sunday morning. I tithe. I do X, Y, and Z. And we're just kind of secure in that. But we don't oftentimes think about those people who are already in our relational world who are not secure in that, who don't yet know the good news of the gospel. There are people in the world who don't have the same security that you and I do, and we're just okay with it because either our own apathy or our own desire for keeping the status quo, even if we would never verbalize that, we're just kind of okay with it. And I hate that. I'm so sick of the status quo. I'm so tired of the world in which we live. I'm so tired of a world that is just simply devoid of hope and where are churches all over the place who have the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we just kind of come here and sit on our hands because we're secure in it. That's not what we're called to. The first sermon, this is the first sermon given in the early church. And this should be a benchmark for not just how we proclaim the gospel, but a benchmark and a reminder that we are called to simply share the gospel. Peter knew that the world in which they lived had just missed the Messiah. Some of them had agreeably crucified the Messiah. And if they weren't careful, their own apathy and disbelief was going to cause them to miss him forever. So he did the most caring thing in the world that he could possibly do. He shared with them the good news of the gospel. There are people in your life that whether through their own apathy, their own disbelief, your own apathy, your own 
desire to, to keep the status quo, whatever it may be, who are going to miss the gospel unless you get out of your own security of Sunday morning. These should be our marching orders. Not finding comfort in our own security, but finding discomfort knowing that there are people you are responsible for who don't yet know Jesus. We need to walk through that. We need to exercise our voice in that and exercise the freedom that we have to make Jesus' name known. So this morning we're going to transition to a time of communion. I'm going to invite the band to come out and stay with me. If you didn't receive communion elements on your way in, you can raise your hand. We've got some guys who will take care of you. They're coming from the back. But in a second, I'm going to pray. And as we pray, I just want you to think about this incredible gift of life that Jesus has given every single one of us. And that we sit here in, in this security, we sit here knowing the greatest news that history has ever shared, the history of the earth, like we recognize what that news is and we are, we are secure in it, which isn't a bad thing. I want you to be secure in your faith. But that being said, there, is other, there are other people who are just simply devoid of hope, people that you interact with every single day, that you have a voice with, that you have the opportunity to talk about faith with, and we just don't because we're scared or because we're apathetic or because we're just we're okay with the way things are can you imagine if you were on the other side of the coin that if you weren't secure in your faith you weren't secure in the recognition that if you die tomorrow that's okay I'm cool with it because I know I'm going to heaven that there are people in this world who when they die, they do not know what is coming after death. And it's our responsibility as a church, it's our responsibility as Christians, as followers of Jesus to make his name known. And so this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna pray in just a second. And after I pray, I'm gonna pray the ABCs, admit, believe, choose. And if you've never accepted Christ before, man, we would love for you to accept Christ because we believe in an open table here at FBH, meaning that you don't have to be a member of our church in order to receive communion with us. You simply have to be a member of the family of God to say yes to Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord and Savior of your life. And so we'll give you that opportunity. But for the majority of us in here, most of us have already made that proclamation. That's why you're here. And so I'm gonna give a little bit of time for you all to just kind of sit in it, to commune with God, to apologize for your sin, to admit the sin that you have in your life. Say, God, I want to reorient myself to you. I want to honor you with my life. And not just by being more moral, not just by saying please and thank you and opening doors for old ladies. That I'm going to live my life in such a way that is going to honor you by sharing the gospel that I am secure in because you are not. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to just elevate the names of those people in your life who need to know you. Maybe they've known you. Maybe they've known God at one point and they've walked away. Maybe they've never made that profession of faith. I don't know. You should because they're members of your oikos. There's people that you already have a relationship with. And so we're going to spend about a minute in silence at the end. I'll say amen. We'll receive communion together. And then we'll respond with a song 
as an entire congregation. Sound good? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the security and the knowledge that your son went to a cross for us as sinners. And that we're not perfect, that we still continue to sin, but God, we want to just keep moving towards you. And so God, for those sins that we have in our life, God, forgive us for those. Holy Spirit, make those sins known. Some sins that maybe we don't even know that we're wrestling with, make those known this morning. But God, beyond that, with with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you're in this room and you've never heard the good news of the gospel, or maybe more importantly, you've never made that profession of faith, that you're a sinner in need of a savior, that you believe that, that Jesus went to the cross for you, you're gonna choose to follow, like if that's you this morning, And I believe there's people who need to make that profession of faith this morning who are in this room right now, that you would simply pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Say, Father, A, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I'm sorry for that sin that put you on the cross. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on that cross for me, that he took all of my sins my sins from yesterday, my sins today, and my sins tomorrow. He took them all on the cross. And I'm sorry for, for putting them there, but I believe that's what he did. And see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, we're just gonna take a minute for you to commune with God. Confess your sin and ask the Spirit to elevate the names of those people who need to know you.